0: After all, there is plenty of room at the bottom.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Materialism Podcast, an exploration of the past, present, and future of material science and engineering. I'm Andrew Falkowski, and I'm joined by my co host, Dr. Taylor Sparks. In this episode, we sat down with an entrepreneur using material science in the skincare industry.
2: We're a natural products company that's built around uh, hops and hemp as our key hero ingredients, Um, and having a small batch production really does mean something.
3: uh, This is Chet Boxley, the founder and chief chemist behind Batch 21, an environmentally friendly skincare company.
2: I'm a chemist by training, uh, so I got my PhD at the University of Utah in the chemistry department, and I've spent... Uh, Quite a bit of time interacting with the material science uh, department, though, as well. So uh, Dr. Sparks and I go way back. I first met Chet
3: 14 years ago when he interviewed me for a job at Ceramitech. I was an undergraduate. I was looking for my very first internship in the field of material science. I still remember the interview because of how hard it was. Chet and two other scientists grilled me with really tough questions. There were questions about thermodynamics, powder processing, ceramic engineering— I remember he even surprised me with a question at the end where he wanted me to, on the ball, estimate how many gas stations there were in the entire Salt Lake Valley. I went on to work with Chet at Tech for two years, and he really was one of my earliest mentors.
2: My first job outside of graduate school was in the ceramics industry, um, and from there uh, we spun out a startup company that was focused on green environmentally friendly materials, so it was still material science related, uh, but that's where I caught the entrepreneurial bug, and... This company is, uh, is called GlycoSurf, so it makes green surfactants. And GlycoSurf itself has spun out its own uh, skincare company to sort of capitalize on some of the ingredients that we make. Uh, green surfactants, or glycolipids is what we call them.
1: Chet briefly mentions that something called a surfactant is a key part of Batch21's products. So what exactly is a surfactant? Well, surfactants are typically chain-like molecules where the two ends of the chain have different functions – On one end, there's a hydrophilic, meaning water-loving head group, and on the other end, there's a hydrophobic, meaning water-hating tail group. By putting such different groups on either end of a molecule, you end up with a material that will be attracted to water on one end and attracted to something like oil on the other end. That's right, and
3: that's really the key to why surfactants are used so frequently in soaps and detergents. Most people are familiar with the idea that oil and water just don't mix. They're too chemically dissimilar or different in order to be dissolved into one another. So imagine how hard it is to clean oils off of your face or your clothes if you're just using pure water. You've probably tried, and you've realized that oils just don't come off. On the other hand, if you use detergent, what you're really doing is you're introducing these surfactant molecules which will attach themselves to the oil on one side and then attach to the water on the other side. The result is that the oils and the residue, which would otherwise be difficult to remove all of a sudden can come right off.
2: Uh, so the glycolipids are used in most of our products, not all of them. Some of them don't require a surfactant.
1: Surfactants are typically petroleum-based and are present in many household cleaning and skincare products. However, the unique aspect about the molecules used and developed by Chet's companies, Glycosurf and Batch21, is that they are glycolipids, which simply means that they are derived from sugar instead of petroleum.
2: Uh, It's definitely different than what's normally seen in surfactants in general. Most of them are A, petroleum-based because uh, petroleum uh, materials are plentiful. And so you can make large volumes at very, very low costs, and it's easy to make a tanker car load. I'm oversimplifying the process, but uh, they are readily available plentiful materials that you can make in large quantities and then ship those large quantities to uh, the Procter & Gamble's or Johnson Johnson's of the world to— to use those materials in their cosmetics and personal care applications, so uh, we're a little bit different in a sense of you know the green re- renewable nature of those materials. Um, the sugar head group in particular is you know they're not new, totally new. They've been known for many years. It's just now they're starting to catch favor with both the consumer as well as the product formulators and manufacturers of consumer products, because as customers are starting to ask for more environmentally friendly options, uh, they're, and they're starting to demand it, in fact, um, these producers and formulators are, you know, listening to the, vi- the voice of the customer.
3: So Chet mentions that these sugar-based surfactants, both those produced naturally, as well as their synthetic counterparts, they've really been around for a while. Synthetic versions of glycolipids really took off with the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which happened in 2010.
2: So if you'll recall, there's a huge oil spill that's happening in the Gulf of Mexico. And there's they, what they do is uh, in the industry to help correct that is they'll add a surfactant to the ocean to help break up those oil slicks into very small droplets so that the uh, plankton and, and the different microbiology of the ocean can feed off of that f- fuel source, that food source. Um, the only thing that they had available to them in large enough quantities was a, a surfactant called Corexit, which is not the most, it, it's actually banned for use in uh, the European Union for, because it's got undetermined, they basically don't know what happens with when you add it to the aquatic life. They don't know what happens to aquatic and plant life when you add it. And we're dumping millions of gallons in there into the ocean because they had no better option. Um, so it was the it was a double-edged sword for them, right? So if you the, the cost of doing nothing was worse than the cost of the risk of dumping this potentially dangerous chemical into the ocean because they didn't know what the ramifications were. So that gave some researchers at the University of Arizona an idea for how to uh, look at increasing the utilization rates of green biosurfactants for uh, many applications, and it started with that. It was really solving a problem, um, and, you know, we're still chipping away at solving that problem. Um, we started Glycosurf in 2014. We spun out Batch 21 Skincare in 2018, so it's only about six months old now, and uh, I'm the chief chemist behind it, so I've designed every product that's on the shelf uh, for the Batch 21 skincare line, uh, mostly to solve what I saw were problems within the industry to create a higher-end product, but at a not a high-end price.
1: Chet's company is still very small in comparison to the other major players in the industry, Companies like Johnson & Johnson, Dove, and Procter & Gamble dominate the skincare market. But the skincare market is also undergoing change and rapid growth. It's expected to reach a market value of almost $180 billion US by 2024. Rather than compete directly with the larger players, Batch 21 is carving out a niche by responding to consumer demand for environmentally friendly products that have a craft or artisan feel to their production and also rely on some unique ingredients.
2: So a key theme across all of our products, is there's two key ingredients. We call them the hero ingredients, uh, and that's hops and hemp. So um, hop oil is is used is very specifically added, mostly for an antimicrobial, antibacterial components. Um, they they sort of add those as a natural way of uh, adding that to the products themselves. They also impart a little bit of a pleasant aroma. So the same reason why you add hops to beer is to extract some of the um, flavor and aroma profiles from those hops. Um, Those can get transferred into our products as well. So they have a, gives it a pleasant aroma, but also a functional uh, antibacterial antimicrobial presence as well.
3: All right, Andrew, you know that I'm a tea toddler. So you're gonna have to explain to me what are hops? Why on earth are they putting them
1: in beer in the first place? So hops are a vine plant that has a flower or a seed where hop oil comes from. Chet mentioned that they use the oil for for the aroma, but primarily for its antibacterial nature. Using hops to kill bacteria goes all the way back when England had colonies in India and traded heavily there. When trying to ship beer, one issue that would arise is that the beer would grow mold or bacteria and it wouldn't be safe to consume. In order to avoid this, beer companies at that time started adding lots of hops to the beer to try and prevent that bacteria growth. And that's how we got the IPA.
2: The hemp seed oil is added because it's got a a lipid structure, a fatty acid profile that is, sorry, there's a little bit of chemistry here, but uh, so that fatty acid profile has um, what they call omega-3 and omega-6. Same things, those fatty acids are present in um, very specific ratios within hemp seed oil. That's actually the right profile for your skin. So the natural sebum production of your your skin, the oil that your skin naturally produces is actually a very similar chain length to the omega 6 and omega 3. So as your skin as as you put the moisturizer on your skin, it's sort of naturally familiar with that And so therefore, it penetrates nice and deep through many layers of the skin. And so you get this really deep hydrating, moisturizing uh, component to the the materials that, you know, since we use the hempseed oil very specifically. It's a really, it's a very fascinating material to work with.
3: So Chet goes on to explain that omega-3 and omega-6 oils are known as these essential oils. And they call them essential because they're not produced by the body naturally. And therefore, in order to get them, they have to be ingested via food or through skincare products. We can also dive a little deeper into what Chent meant when he said that the chemical profile of these oils is ideal to bond with skin. In general chemistry, one of the basic concepts that students learn is that like dissolves like, and this is based on the polarity of the molecule. Polarity refers to the distribution of electric charge around a molecule. Some molecules are called polar because the elements on one side want the electrons a little bit more than those that are on the other side, and this is due to a difference in electronegativity. The result is that electrons clump onto one side preferentially, creating a positive side and a negative side. Water is a good example of this. We all know that water is H2O. The molecule itself is in a sort of bent V shape. It has the oxygen, which wants the electrons more than the hydrogen, and so it's more negative on the oxygen side, a little bit less negative on the hydrogen side. Nonpolar molecules, on the other hand, occur when electrons are equally shared in a molecule or when the molecule geometry cancels out any of these polar bonds. When determining whether a molecule will bond with another and dissolve into another, the general rule is like dissolves like. This means that polar molecules can only dissolve other polar molecules, and nonpolar molecules can only dissolve other nonpolar molecules. We
2: then asked Chet
3: about how these molecules are isolated.
2: Uh, So most of the time it's CO2 extraction. We don't do it. Um, We choose providers that use CO2 extraction because it's the, I will call it the gentlest uh, extraction method. There's others out there, but um, it's definitely the one that uses the least solvents and uh, things of that nature. So we can really get the, I don't want to say the purest form because that's not the right word, but the sort of As it is in nature, when you extract it out, you don't want to change the chemical structure at all through the extraction process, Um, and so this one sort of extracts it in its most natural state.
1: So I just want to add a little more information on CO2 extraction. In liquid form, CO2 is pushed through plant matter and acts as a solvent that draws out essential oils. This mixture of liquid CO2 and plant oil is then slightly heated or put under a vacuum, which causes CO2 to evaporate off. Unlike water, which is polar, CO2 is nonpolar, so it is able to bond with fatty acids and easily carry them out of the desired matter. This process has a high degree of precision and can be adjusted to extract very specific molecules. The oils extracted with CO2 also tend to have longer shelf lives, they retain smells and colors better, and no harmful solvents are used which could damage the oils or the environment. Batch 21 differs from other skincare companies in other ways too
2: yeah, so there's a couple unique differences about our soaps that we make. Um, so the first one, the biggest, probably the biggest difference is small batch production. So and that's true of all of our products. but um, in particular in soaps, um, you know, You know, the dials and the ivories of the world, they mass-produce these things. And it's not that it's a bad thing that they mass-produce them. It's just that there's a difference between a mass-produced product and a small-batch product. It's uh, the—if I was to draw an analogy, it's the difference between Budweiser and Lagunitas, right? Small-batch production really means something in terms of the the choice of ingredients that you can put in. You can choose higher quality. You can, you know, put more time and attention and detail into the quality of the product that comes out. Um, not just the quality of the ingredients that go in. And so um, all of our soaps, you know, we utilize that um, as one of our key features is, is to really create small batches that have had attention to detail put into every single batch. Um, the other unique thing about our soaps is we actually—they're called regrained um, because we upcycle uh, what's called spent brewers' grain. So uh, the brewery industry has, after the you've um, you, you've put your grains into the the mash uh, and you've extracted the sugars out of them, that's going to eventually use to ferment the beer. Um, there's the rest of the grains left over and is now a waste stream for the the brewery. And so we can take some of that waste stream. We're not big enough to take it all, but uh, we can take some of that, upcycle it into the soap. We, we process quite a bit of it in terms of drying and, and grinding so it's not just straight grain that we're adding to the beer. But um, we, we process it a little bit in our house uh, before we add it to the soap. But it, it gives it a, just a, a fine enough texture that you actually feel like there's a little grit to it. Um, and that creates sort of a gentle exfoliation uh, when you're using it, uh, whether it be the shower, your hands. And, and, and I don't believe anybody else is doing that in the country.
3: Uh. In our discussion with Chet, something we learned is that many companies will tout their product as being environmentally friendly. But one aspect of environmental product design that is rarely considered is the packaging.
2: We wanted to be true to our company roots at Glycosurf of being a green, environmentally friendly company. And so that includes all the ingredients that go into the products, each of our products. We, we select all plant-based materials, um, so we avoid petroleum uh, by choice. And, you know, for the petroleum engineers out there, I'm not anti-petroleum. Uh, I still drive an Audi, so <laughs> I still have a gas-powered engine. Um, our packaging and containers are also um, environmentally friendly. So it's, it's one thing to make a product and put it into a plastic container that's recyclable, it's a whole other thing to take the product and put it into a plastic packaging that's recycled already and recyclable. And that's really hard to find. It's it's shockingly how hard it is to find recycled plastic packaging in the form factors that you're looking for. Some of it exists. We've, we've located the best we can, um, but we've had to change. Uh, you know, you have a vision of what you want your product to, the packaging, what you want the design to look like and what you want it to come in. And so the biggest challenge was finding somebody who actually makes uh, plastic containers that are, use recycled uh, materials.
1: I'm actually really glad that Chef brought up how difficult it can be to find recycled plastics. I think a common misconception is that plastics can be completely recycled and new products can easily rely on 100% recycled plastics. We'll likely devote a whole future episode to this, but in short, one of the problems with recycling plastics is that there are lots of different types of plastics. In fact, look at the bottom of a plastic bottle if you have one nearby. You'll probably see the recycle symbol with a number in the center. That number corresponds to the specific type of plastic that the bottle is made of. There's so many different types of plastics, and they can have very different properties. In general, you don't want to mix them together during recycling because they might melt at different temperatures or, Once they mix, they no longer have the properties of interest. However, expecting consumers to be able to differentiate plastics from one to another and then separate them into a bunch of different bins isn't realistic. So instead, most municipalities have what's called single-stream recycling, where all the paper, plastic, metals, etc. are thrown into a bin together, and then the individual materials are separated by hand. This doesn't fix everything yet, though. Most plastics are composed of atoms arranged in repeat units called monomers. These repeat units are then bonded together back to back in a long chain. They kind of look like long strands of spaghetti. Now, just because two bottles are labeled polyethylene doesn't mean that they're exactly the same. They might have the same repeating unit, but one bottle could be made of a super long chain, while the other could be made of a really short one. And in general, recycling is going to mix these two together, which gives less than perfect properties. Chet also pointed out that most containers are laminates, meaning that they might be made out of one main material, but they have an inner lining, maybe which is you know a different material, or maybe the consumer didn't clean out the container before recycling it, so there's residual contaminants which prevent recycling.
3: Now, while green surfactants represent an interesting and promising new class of materials, the main reason that we wanted to interview Chet for this podcast was to talk about how you get a product based on a new material out of the lab and into the market. Many materials engineers are likely unaware of just what exactly goes into entrepreneurship, starting a business, finding users, and all that. So we asked Chet to tell us a little bit about what he's learned along the way. One of the first things we wanted to know is which has been more challenging, creating the product or selling the product?
2: As a chemist, I shake my head all the time. Uh, it's uh, much, much harder than you would expect. Um, you know, It's not that I thought it was going to be easy, right? But um, it's, it's just the biggest challenge, right? Uh, I guess in some ways a bit naive thinking that the hard part was creating a really solid product. The hard part selling it.
1: Social media has become a dominant advertising platform for reaching younger consumers and is an area that Batch 21 is looking to grow its brand. One way that they have sought to compete in this space is by partnering with influencers.
2: We're trying to make it a big boost. Uh, We're trying to really engage uh, with the social media platform. And so we have a few influencers that we've engaged with uh, to try and uh, spread the word, so to speak. And and that's been actually a a really interesting learning experience because I had never done that before. I'd never really worked with influencers. Um, And they're kind of fun. To be honest, and so we have, uh, you know, a couple here in Utah, and a couple, all of them are located in the United States currently, um, which is by design. Um, and so we're just trying to, you know, pick strategic areas of the country that we think uh, our products might be well accepted in.
1: For a small skincare company, it's not enough just to sell a product to a new customer once either. What you really need is to retain customers, which has its own challenges. We asked Chet about what metrics he's paid attention to when it comes to customer retention.
2: Uh, in terms of metrics, I mean, I think the biggest metric is um, customers, are they buying? And and really, I think our biggest metric after that is, are they repeat buying? Um, so lots of people are willing to take a chance on on a new product or a new brand. and And if they like it, then they'll come back. And if they don't, then you'll never hear from them again. And so... I think for us it's not that fir- – the first order is great, but it's really the second, third, fourth, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, other metrics are, you know, social media, you know, things, people reaching out, talking, communicating with you, how well do you communicate back. Um, I think those are good things to, to have as metrics and, you know, because then you have brand loyalty building online.
3: With all the work that Batch21 puts into advertising and reaching new customers, we next asked Chet what surprised him the most about advertising in the skincare space.
2: Uh, I'm continually surprised by the—I um, mean, I think most people generally understand that the female market—I mean, A, it's kind of saturated for one, but B, there's a huge market there, right? It, it is massive compared to the male market, um, but I was continually surprised by how much genuine interest in uh, personal care there was in, on the male side of things, too. And so while we don't design our products for male or female— um, there's definitely a big uh, interest level uh, from both sides, but you know I'm always surprised by uh, the the male you know consumer and how educated they are and, and how you know knowledgeable they are in this space and what they really want.
3: Another key part of entrepreneurship is product development and prototyping. What starts out as a proof of concept in the laboratory will almost certainly be changed and improved over and over as the final product is refined. We asked if this was the case with Batch 21 as well.
2: There's definitely been a lot of generations of trial and error. I often get asked, "Is Batch 21 your 21st attempt?" And it's not. I'm <laughs> well above 21. Um, it's the uh, just that process, though, of going through uh, the creation of products is, you know, because you're you're looking for not only unique ingredients, but you got to have stability. You got to have, you know. Uh, it, it, you don't want it to grow mold. You, don't, you want it to be stable. You want it to be temperature-resistant. And so there's a lot of factors that go into designing the product. And, and it just takes uh, several iterations to get the right formulation down to where you're really happy with how it – I mean, skin feel is the biggest thing, right? It's got to feel good on the skin. Otherwise, nobody's going to use it. Um, and then once you get skin feel down, then you're like, all right, can I make it stable? All right, If it's stable, can I make it, you know – smell good, or whatever.
3: Commercialization sometimes relies critically on patents to protect intellectual property, while others rely on trade secrets. We wanted to know what was the role of patents within the skincare industry.
2: Yeah, so Glycosurf has patents for the, the ingredients, the glycolipid ingredients. Um, as far as Batch 21 is concerned, um, we keep our formulations uh, sort of proprietary in-house.
3: One of the most popular startup ideologies is the lean startup method, which stresses, among other things, that startups should learn how to very rapidly prototype so that they waste as little time and resources as possible to get a product consumers will love.
2: We asked Chet how they were able to rapidly iterate. Um, so, you know, I can iterate through myself and and get to something that I'm happy with in about a week, and then I can give it to some folks, get some feedback take another week to iterate, give some feedback, take another week. So usually, you know, it takes about probably two months before we're kind of like, all right, I think we're ready to go on to the safety and and testing of, you know, we've kind of locked in our design and our formulation, um, and we're ready to kind of move to the next level of things and decide whether or not we want to add it to the – because not everything we design gets added to the product portfolio. Sometimes we're just not ready for it yet. Sometimes I just lack packaging um, but it's months, usually. The very first product, when we launched Batch 21, it was about a year and a half of getting those first three products because part of it was a learning curve for us to figure out what we were doing um, along with the learning curve of just getting the products to where we were happy. Um, and then finally, there's a point in time where you're like, I could iterate on this my rest of my life and to try and make this product perfect. But at some point in time, you just got to release it.
1: Being in both a scientific and management role within Batch 21 requires different approaches and skill sets. We next asked Chet about some of the challenges that come with switching between these roles.
2: You know, I have both a business degree and a, and a chemistry degree. Um, and so, you know, I try to speak both languages and communicate across, across the aisle, so to speak. Um, not a popular term these days, but... Um, it's an interesting, you know, I use definitely both skill sets that I learned in both degrees uh, almost every day in terms of just how, um, you know, how to to work with people and how to motivate them and then, you know, just how to be engaging. Um, And then also on the scientific side, how to create really interesting products and and work with the production team to sort of uh, make sure that the design elements that we wanted to make sure they get translated all the way through production. Even though it is still small batch production, um, you know, it's still larger than a beaker, right?
3: As an educator, I'm always fascinated about learning from school versus learning in real life. I was keen to find out, you know, just how valuable was Chet's MBA in picking up the skills that he really needed to run a business?
2: Uh, It's a little bit of both. Like, there's definitely a lot of on-the-job stuff that I've uh, learned over the years in terms of you know, especially people management, right? I mean, that's probably the biggest. That's one of the things that they focus on at business school is, you know, how to manage people, and that's a very, you know, that's an important skill set. Um, and so, I definitely had a lot of um, educational resources to rely on for that. But there's a huge component of just experience of in dealing with people. You know, as and as far as the science side, it's the same thing, right? You know, there's there's so many things you learn in the in the science. In the world of chemistry or materials, that uh, very specific elements you can key in on and, and, you know, utilize to your advantage. They say
3: that every startup needs a hacker, a hipster, and a hustler. We asked Chet about the different members of his
2: Batch 21 team. Uh, well, we we definitely have a, I mean, we have a unique... Uh, skill set so that we have a few people who are definitely more reside on the science side of things uh, and people that reside more on the business side of things. Um, and of course, we've talked about I get to straddle both, which is the the fun part. We have some millennials. Um, I don't know if I'd call them hipsters or hacks. They, they might take offense, but uh, <laughs> millennials for sure.
1: Anyone who has worked on a difficult project has felt the pain of investing time and resources into something only for it not to work out. This situation is common for businesses as well and is the next thing we asked Chet about.
2: We've uh, invested some time and resources, in, sometimes in a new product development. That's where you kind of go through and you spend some time iterating. And, and even though you try to make it as fast as you can, um, you know, we had like a, um, our first generation, our first attempt at really creating a night cream um, that didn't go, so we had to we we scrapped it and put it on the because it did it just didn't work, um, and so we scrapped it, sort of moved it down the list and focused on the other things that had a higher probability of of working and from a formulation perspective, um, and it was purely internal like metrics that we were trying to impart on it. Um, we never really actually we only gave it to a few select people uh, to try, um, so it was never like released or anything, even on a beta test or anything like that, but. Uh, we just weren't happy with it. And so and you're kind of like left at the end of the day, at, looking back at that going, damn, I could have been doing something else. I mean, it's you know, the opportunity cost uh, of choosing to do that product over something that did work.
1: Although these wrong turns delay progress, there's still much that can be learned from them.
2: It's true. Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be, you can not everything's going to be a home run, right? I mean, not, even, not everything's going to score a hit. Uh, so sometimes you have a swing and a miss. And, and clearly our first attempt at the night cream had a swing and a miss, and, and we'll come back to it uh, eventually when the time is right and we figure out, you know, that there's a real need for it um, in the portfolio, and we'll revisit it and learn from what we did. We definitely—you know, that's the one thing, like, you keep everything that you ever do in terms of the data you collected and the formulation work that you did. I mean, I may not keep the specific product in that jar, but, I mean, I know you have tons of notes on it and all your feedback— uh, recorded digitally somewhere, uh, that it's easy to pull back up and pick right up where you left off and say, all right, what can we do? To Do I scrap it entirely? Or can I really take this and make some major enhancements to it to really get it to where I need it to be? That's the interesting thing about being a scientist when you're doing this sort of from a business perspective is you can treat everything as an experiment, right? So I can place a bet uh, you know, on some little aspect of marketing or sales or you know, new product development, and it's, you're really just placing a bet, but I can learn from it scientifically, and I can think of it as an experiment and say, all right, now I'm going to change one variable within that and see if it improves and, and goes towards my hypothesis or if it goes away from.
1: Finally, we asked Chet what advice he would give students who are interested in pursuing science and engineering in an entrepreneurial setting.
2: Uh, well, so if you're a student and you're currently interested in entrepreneurship, I would highly encourage you to... Um, Interact with the entrepreneurship opportunities that you have at the university or wherever you're going to school. Um, I'm going to guess that there's an entrepreneurship center of some type within the business college. Um, And just be present, right? Take courses if you can. Even if you're a chemistry major or a material science major, right, go take a business course in entrepreneurship. Get outside your wheelhouse and learn something new. And then you can always take that scientific background and apply it to entrepreneurship. Again, thinking of things as an experiment what's my hypothesis? How can I move towards and, uh, you know, towards that? Um, and so you know, take a class, right? That's the easiest thing you can do is just go learn something new. And who, you'll learn what you're interested in and what you're not interested in from, you know, regardless of what your background is. Because like I know from my right now, I'm truly a scientist. I love the business aspects of it. I don't like sales, right? I just know that about me. That, that's a valuable thing to know about yourself, though, is what you like and don't like to do within—because as an entrepreneur, you're going to wear a lot of hats. You can't wear them all, so which ones do you take off and give to your partners? Because you can't wear them all. It's impossible. I've tried. You can't. You don't want to.
3: It was fascinating to hear about Chet's journey in commercializing a new material into a product— While every entrepreneurship story is unique, they do all tend to share a lot of common threads. We'll be covering many more interesting stories about materials being commercialized in future episodes. However, for the next episode, stay tuned because we'll be learning a fascinating way of synthesizing and processing materials using a super advanced futuristic technology.
1: Uh, dude, is that a regular
3: old kitchen microwave? Yeah, you better stay tuned for next time. If you enjoyed the information we covered in today's podcast and you want to learn even more, then check out our show notes where we outline some of the reference materials. And for those interested in learning more about startups, entrepreneurship, how to get products out of the lab and into the market, we can highly recommend two books. The first is The Lean Startup by Eric Ries, and the second one is Zero to One by Peter Thiel. If you have questions, send us emails at materialism.podcast at gmail.com and make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. Finally, check out our Instagram page at materialism.podcast and connect with us to let us know what new material you'd like to hear about. And a special thanks as always to Colabyte who created the music for our podcast. He makes a ton of cool music. Check it out at colabyte.bandcamp.com.
0: The inventors of fire, electricity, magnetism, iron, lead, glass, silk, cotton, the makers of tools, the captors of lightning, the architect, the engineer, the musician are all beneficiaries of the materials of this world and are bound only by their imaginations in manipulating those materials.